This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. I mean, it's still got the characteristics of the wine. That's the thing. The better the wine, the, the more, you know, things that you can do with it, the more flavors. When it tastes like a Riesling. Yeah, That's I mean, delicious. I get, like, banana-y flavors on that. And this I use with marinating herrings and things. So mm. Very good with seafoods. Mm. So, so when you see that sort of breadth of range, you begin to see all the potential of the vinegars and what you can do with them. Vinegar, it's not just for cleaning your house. Or killing your fruit flies. Although it is mighty good at both of those things. But really, that's the least of vinegar's powers. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And today we're diving into vinegar. Not literally, because that would sting. Vinegar is often relegated to salad dressing. But this episode, we talk to people who want you to think about it as much more than that. First, though, what is vinegar? And why does Katy Perry think that drinking apple cider vinegar will cure basically everything? As usual, we have the answers to all the questions. And then, perhaps most exciting of all, we actually visit the home of the most famous vinegar in the world. It's like the Katy Perry of vinegars, although much older and honestly, more to my taste. That's right, balsamic vinegar. Forget the stuff you buy at the supermarket. It is not real balsamic. Genuine aged balsamic, it turns out, is game-changingly delicious. In ancient Mesopotamia, around the city of Babylon, which is near where Baghdad, Iraq is these days, along the Euphrates and Tigris River, there were tons of really plump, juicy fruit. That led into what likely were the first wines, and what comes after wine is vinegar. That's Michael Harlan Turkel. He's the author of a new cookbook called Acid Trip that celebrates vinegar. The first vinegars were from wine that had gone off. The clue is in the name. Vinegar comes from vin aigre, or literally in French, sour wine. And people mostly consumed those first accidental vinegars as a beverage, like the wine they used to be. But they quickly realized that this sour wine had other uses. There were instances of it not only as this celebratory drink, but also as this currency. In Egypt, they were trading vinegars to embalmers when, you know, a family member passed. So it was a preservative in both ways. 
Vinegar was so valuable that people used it to pay to have their relatives embalmed, but ironically, they also figured out that the vinegar could do the work of preserving the dead body itself. Vinegar has a really low pH. It's really acidic. And that means it kills off other microbes that would make the body decay. Two for one. Like Michael says, the earliest vinegars were probably made in the Middle East, just because the first wines were made there. But vinegar is a thing that has been stumbled upon again and again, all around the world. In his book, Michael explores vinegar making in Japan and Peru and Mexico and beyond. And I don't think I fully realized until I started traveling how multicultural, how expansive the world of vinegar truly is. So there are so many starting points, uh, so many points around the world that preservation methods and techniques happened at so many times along history. In Europe, like in ancient Egypt, people started out by drinking their sour wine. Michael thinks that vinegar first made its way into the kitchen in ancient China. It it was a condiment. It was a dipping sauce. It was something that you poured over a bowl of noodles. It wasn't fully integrated into sauces initially, but then kind of got into the fold. But from the very beginning, people weren't just appreciating vinegar for its ability to add tang to a sauce or preserve things. Vinegar has had a health halo as far back as ancient Greece, if not beyond. There are instances of Pliny the Elder or Hildegard or all these ancients that wrote about using certain aspects of vinegar in their healing. Posca, which is an old Greek drink, was actually usually an herbal vinegar mixed with something to cut it a little bit because it was so tart. But that was used as as medicine, um, if not a placebo, to make people feel better. In France, there was a famous early health-promoting vinegar called the Four Thieves. I can't tell you who the Four Thieves were, but in modern-day Provence, you can still actually find this vinegar around. This Four Thieves vinegar was first made during the bubonic plague. The story, which is almost definitely not true, but is fun anyway, is that a gang of thieves were robbing the houses of people who were dead or dying of the plague. And then when they were caught, the thieves bought their innocence by sharing their secret recipe for a vinegar that they said had kept them healthy, even in the houses of the sick. Had a a lot of aromatics and herbs like wild sage, rosemary. Modern days, you can find garlic in it, I think more for culinary purposes than to stave off uh, the bubonic plague, which it was used for. And I think those smells and those flavors were resonant of something that was healthy or You know, uh, that old saying of, you know, if it doesn't taste good, it must be good for you. But then it started tasting good. And then everyone died of the bubonic plague. But that's a whole nother story. But now today, vinegar is back in the spotlight as a cure-all, especially cider vinegar, for whatever reason. You have celebrities including Heidi Klum, Megan Fox, Hilary Duff, Scarlett Johansson, even explorer Ralph Fiennes singing vinegar's praises. So we wondered, is there any truth to any of that? There are a lot of claims, but the the thing to keep in mind when you read any paper about the wonders of any food, anything from oranges to kombucha to vinegar, is a lot of studies start off in a petri dish. To be fair, some of the studies were done in rats too. And that voice of skepticism is one you might recognize if you're a regular gastropod listener. It's Ben Wolf of Tufts University, a.k.a. our in-house microbiologist. That's right, microbes. Drink now. (laughs) Cheers. So there is some interesting science on vinegar's health benefits, but the only vinegar superpower that's really well documented is its ability to kill bacteria. They're actually being killed by acetic acid, which is what makes vinegar vinegar. 
So you can add, you know, high doses of acetic acid to E. coli, to salmonella, and they'll die because of that acidity. Then translating those kinds of studies from a pure culture in a petri dish to the more complicated world of uh, the human body, uh, there's some challenges there. It's much more complicated. You know, if you drank a ton of vinegar, you know, you probably aren't going to feel great. And that's because your own body tries to maintain a certain pH in different places. So drinking a ton of vinegar isn't necessarily going to make you super, super healthy. There does seem to be some intriguing research on the effects of consuming small amounts of vinegar on blood sugar and weight loss, but these are not definitive studies at all. Sorry, Heidi, Scarlett, and Ralph, more research is needed. In other words, vinegar is not a cure-all. That said, adding fermented foods like vinegar to your diet seems to be a good thing overall if you enjoy them. Just listen to Ben rather than Heidi and don't drink the whole bottle in one go. But vinegar's ability to kill bacteria is curious because vinegar is actually made by bacteria. Like I said, vinegar is basically acetic acid. And acetic acid is a byproduct of microbial metabolism. It's essentially waste from a certain group of microbes. This group of microbes is called acetic acid bacteria. And to make vinegar, they first need alcohol to eat, which is why you can't have vinegar unless you have alcohol first. Which, when you think about it, it's not something that a lot of organisms can use. And in fact, it's actually toxic to many organisms. But for acetic acid bacteria, it's delicious and wonderful. Acetic acid bacteria cannot get enough booze. They love it. They chug their way through any alcohol you give them. They break it down, and then they sweat it out as acetic acid, carbon dioxide, and water. This sounds like great fun. Microbe party! But it's actually a lot of work. Why would they go through all this work to use up alcohol and produce acetic acid? And in part, it makes a lot of sense. It's a great way to kill competitors in your environment. So if you want to grow as a microbe, you have to fight with all these things living around you. And so acetic acid is a you know, a very strong acid in, in high concentrations. The pH, the acidity of the environment is um, a really difficult thing to deal with for many microbes. That's why it makes sense that vinegar preserves things like dead bodies in Egypt and also pickles. So vinegar is 3 to 6% acetic acid. The rest is just water and a few other flavors, depending on what kind of booze you started with. And because thirsty humans have developed so many different types of booze, there are tons of different kinds of vinegars out there. Red wine vinegar and white wine vinegar and rice wine vinegar. There's pineapple vinegar and coconut vinegar and malt vinegar. You can start with absolutely any product as long as it has enough sugar in it to be fermented by yeast into alcohol. And once the yeast have done their work, then you let the acetic acid bacteria have their party. Yeah, so acetic acid bacteria are everywhere. So if you walk in a field of flowers, if you even walk through Central Park or any place where there is soil, where there are plants, where there are insects around, there are acetic acid bacteria. They're living in places with little bits of sugar, like inside of flowers where there's nectar. Um, they're living inside the bodies of insects. And uh, so anywhere you have open alcohol, um, these bacteria can get into that environment, and that's really where, that's their happy place. And this is why, as Michael told us, those first vinegars were almost definitely an accident. The acetic acid bacteria would have just fallen in those open Mesopotamian wine containers, and then poof, vinegar. Lots of traditional vinegars are still made this way, just by relying on acetic acid bacteria in the environment to sour a jug full of wine. Andy Harris, a food writer turned vinegar entrepreneur, makes vinegar in his shed in West London in earthenware crocks and barrels. He told us that that's a tradition that goes back millennia. 
traditionally in France and probably many other parts of Europe, peasant society, you know, farmers, each family would have a pot, vinegar crock, or a barrel where they made their vinegar. And that would be literally pouring their slops from the daily wine. So then they use that as the family vinegar barrel. Among vinegar makers, this is known as the Orléans method. Michael told us the name comes from the town of Orléans in France that served as a stopping off point for wine coming into Paris. And it had this amazing history of all this wine coming from the Loire, you know, uh, along the Loire River, and then would be shuttled up to Paris. Well, whatever didn't make it on the boat uh, as wine and then converted into vinegar was dropped off at the shores. So peoples or artisans there had to figure out something to do with it, and they developed the Orléans method which was one of the initial barrel-aged methods of uh, vinegar. It's the most low-maintenance thing you can imagine. The wine sits there, the acetic acid bacteria do their thing, and then you drain the resulting vinegar off and bottle it, leaving the dregs in the barrel to get things going the next time. The only one who's left is, is Martin Pure, who's a sixth-generation vinegar maker in Orléans. And I couldn't even walk into the vinegar cellars, or it was actually on the second and third floor, because the smell was so strong. At the height of the town's vinegar production around the time of the French Revolution in the late 1700s, there were dozens of vinegar makers in town. Imagine the smell. The Orléans method is also a very slow method of making vinegar, which is fine, but it has its downsides for businessmen who, you know, traditionally favor making a quick buck. You have to have a lot of patience, and you have to have a lot of product. All that changed in the late 1700s when Louis Pasteur noticed that booze turned into vinegar more quickly if there was more oxygen in the liquid. So people started to experiment with ways to expose the vinegar to more air, first by trickling it down through beds of wood chips in a barrel, and then, more recently, using something called the Fring's acetator. This is the method that's still used to produce most of the world's vinegar today. Ben told us that these acetators work by bubbling up oxygen into alcohol. It's sort of like a, a bubbler in an aquarium, and that continuously pumps in a lot of oxygen into the system, and that happens over just a couple of days. So these microbes are, are capable of making vinegar over really short time periods if the conditions are right. Whereas in Andy's shed, the wine or beer takes as long as it takes to become vinegar. Three months, six months however much time the acetic acid bacteria need to get the job done. So we wondered, does making vinegar faster make a difference to the flavor? And what contributes the most flavor to the end product anyway? Yeah, so I think, you know, in terms of the flavor of vinegar, I'd love to think that the microbes are doing a whole lot. But at the end of the day, the thing that's driving flavor often in vinegar is what you start off with. That plain distilled vinegar or white vinegar you buy at the store is made from straight ethanol. And that ethanol could have come from corn or really any of the huge number of industrial processes that produce ethanol as a waste product. So it's pretty tasteless. But what about the red wine vinegar at the grocery store versus Andy's red wine vinegar? They're both made from red wine. And then this, this is what I call my vinegar shed. Andy used to be a food writer, like I said. So he has lots of wine writer friends who give him their leftover tasting bottles. So that's a Bordeaux, that's a Tempranillo, Rioja. Yeah, sadly, the red wine vinegar in my cupboard is not a single varietal. And yes, Andy's red wine vinegar is genuinely really tasty, better than the one I have at home. Like Ben said, the starting material really does matter. But so wait, that raises a question. 
could you just put that fancy Bordeaux into one of these industrial bubblers and make really good red wine vinegar really fast? As usual, the answer seems to be not necessarily. First of all, Andy's vinegar gets some great flavor notes from the wood barrels themselves. But then there's the aging process. Ben pointed out that there's a lot going on in the wine as it slowly becomes vinegar. When these acetic acid bacteria are metabolizing the alcohol and converting it into acetic acid, they're not just doing that, right? Their cells are doing other things. And so you can imagine if you let those things sit around for a while, some of those cells will die. And as those cells die, they release different things into the environment, metabolites that we can perceive as flavors. You could you could imagine that there would be a much more complicated um, cascade, microbial death cascade that could end up in some really beautiful flavors in the longer fermentation. Yep, that's right. It's the microbial death cascade in Andy's vinegar that makes it so pleasing on the palate. Perfect band name. Cynthia, if we were a band rather than a podcast, we would totally be called microbial death cascade if we had any musical talent. But microbial death combined with the source alcohol is not the only way to get amazing flavored vinegar. Andy, for example, he doesn't just make vinegars. He also has an incredible collection that he sells as well. And lots of them are infused with herbs and fruit and flowers. So there's this wonderful lady called Natalie Lafour who makes all these vinegars. This comes from a 16th century recipe she found in a cookbook and it's vermeil, and it's basically with cloves and cinnamon. This is another way to build flavor in your vinegar. Infuse it. That, for example, I use with duck, duck breast, to deglaze. That sounds perfect. Ideal. The herb and spice flavors are all preserved in the vinegar. These are made by nuns, and there's a thyme flower vinegar. You just smell Mm. from the bottle. So these are very intense and savory, and all, all the... All the herbs and the fruit are grown in the monastery. Tarragon, you can really get that aniseed of the tarragon in that Mm, one. I love tarragon so much. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Sariet, which is this one of my favorites, savory. Wow, it's so really earthy. So that with a lovely warm, warm potato salad. Wow. You know, just get some waxy potatoes and just literally just get them out the pan, add some of that and some good olive oil and some nice sea salt. We had an epic vinegar tasting session at Andy's, and it was really easy to see how these super flavorful infused wine vinegars would add a whole new dimension to a dish. With Andy, though, there's one crucial vinegar we did not taste because we knew we were headed to Italy to taste it in its home, balsamic vinegar. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? 
Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you... I'm telling you, you belong, and I'm telling you, you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Okay, what you see here is one of our robotic lawnmower. Uh, we were the first one to introduce robotic lawnmowers in, uh, in a vineyard. Here we are, surrounded by grapevines near an 18th century villa in the gorgeous Italian countryside. And this oversized lawnmower Roomba thing is following us around. Yeah, that's Enea. That's, well, Inia in English, but... Uh, we have uh, Mario, Pippo, Inia, and uh, Ulisse, Ulysses. So we, we, we decided to give them name. This is where balsamic vinegar comes from. My name is Emilio Biancardi uh, from Antica Cetaia Villa Bianca. Uh, we're in the zone of origin uh, for traditional balsamic vinegar of Modena, which is just the province of Modena. People have been making vinegar here for thousands of years. Cristina Sereni works in the Museum of Traditional Balsamic Vinegar, not far from Emilio's Vineyards. We know that we were famous for vinegars even in Roman times. We cannot grow olive trees, we cannot grow lemon trees, winter frost kills everything. We know that we were growing grapes even in Roman times. Apicion, one of the chefs of the Roman age, was using vinegar from Modena, and he writes it in his recipes. So we know that in Roman times we were already famous for our production of vinegars. And I'm using the plural because we had many, many vinegars. Different kinds of vinegar, made in different ways, with apples, with uh, grapes, with uh, uh, wine or cooked grape must. Cooked grape must. That is the thing that sets balsamic apart. Must is just the pressed wine grapes, juice, seeds, skins, stems, and all. And then that must is cooked for between 12 and 72 hours. It's brought to the boil and then gently simmered. That's the secret of our product. <laughs> and it gives us these four major effects. Volume reduction, sugar concentration, almost killing of all the enzymes and bacteria that can lead to an alcoholic fermentation. And last but not least the first change in the color due to the caramelization of sugar and to the Maillard reaction. The Maillard reaction is a chemical reaction from heating proteins and sugars that makes things brown and tasty, like the brown top of a loaf of bread. Same thing is happening to the cooking grape must. And like Christina said, it's not just that they've been making vinegar in Modena for thousands of years, but they've also been cooking grape must for just as long. The idea of cooking comes from the Roman. 
as you may know, the Roman didn't have any sugar. They just had honey and cooked must. This was one of the sweetest things that they had. Cooked must, which is called saba in Modena, it's still used as a sweetener in the region today to make Christmas confectionery. In fact, quite a few places still have that tradition left over from Roman times. Emilio told us that cooked must is big in Romania, too. And like everywhere else in the world where vinegar has been invented, that sweet cooked grape must turned into alcohol and then vinegar by accident. And unsurprisingly, it was delicious. People loved it. That happy accident was the first balsamic vinegar, the granddaddy of all the balsamic vinegars we drizzle today. Balsamic vinegar is, by definition, cooked grape must aged. This sounds simple, and yet bottles of real balsamic vinegar cost about 50 bucks minimum. So obviously it's not quite as simple as it sounds. For starters, you can't just use any old grape. Our productive law says which kind of grapes we have to use. So the Trebbiani, Ancilotta, Lambruschi, so typical grapes from the zone of origin. So far, so straightforward. Then it gets a little nuts. We went upstairs at Emilio's villa into his balsamic attic. Neither of you have ever been in a balsamic attic before. No? Okay, prepare yourself. Have, have the mic on. Oh, mic on. It's not off. Okay. <laughs> Life-changing. Even though Tony warned us, we still freaked out. We got out of the elevator and it hit us right away, square to the nose. Oh, wow. Sweet and it's acidic and it's warm. Well, it's not even so warm because I left. The no, I mean the smell is like a really warm okay, smell. Yeah. A little spicy. Yeah, yeah. A little yeah. caramel. Okay, follow me. As Emilio started to say, it wasn't just a warm oh smell, which I loved, but it was also <gasps> really freaking hot. Which, it turns out, serves a purpose. Because once you've got your cooked must, you use it to refill a barrel that's half filled with older balsamic, and then you leave it for an entire year, winter followed by summer, and the magic starts to happen. The fluxation between hot and cold is really important because the acidic bacteria are uh, really active when it's hot. So in winter, when it's cold and calm, you have the, uh, sediment. And after a cold, calm winter and a busy, hot summer, the sugar in the must has turned into alcohol and it's starting to turn into vinegar. Andy's red wine vinegar would long be done and bottled by now. But Emilio is nowhere near finished. Even if it seems a really calm and slow product, it's a really dynamic product. You have to keep the product alive. This is what Emilio has to do to keep his balsamic alive. Every year, once a year, he has to go up to the attic to sniff his barrels and then move some of the vinegar from one barrel to another. And then the vinegar that was in that second barrel, well, some of that gets moved to a third barrel, which some of the vinegar from that third barrel has to be moved into a fourth. And then some of the vinegar from the fourth, well, you get the picture. Each barrel down that path year after year is smaller. In part, it's because you're only moving some of the vinegar from one barrel to the next. In part, it's because some of the liquid evaporates over the course of the year. And so up in Emilio's attic, there are all these beautiful rows of barrels, each progressively smaller in the row. This process of moving just a little bit of the aging vinegar each year, it can be as little as a liter, like a couple of pints. It's called the passages, and it happens every spring. When temperature rises... Yeasts and acetic acid bacteria start wake up and they start to work. So you understand that the time is, is right by the perfumes you are perceiving. 
That's why Emilio sniffs his barrels to know when to start the passages. You can smell when the acetic acid bacteria have woken up from winter hibernation and rolled up their sleeves to start another long season of eating alcohol. So each of those barrels in a set, it gets a little bit of the vinegar from the barrel before. So in each barrel, there's vinegar there from the very first year that the barrel was ever used to make vinegar. This is why when you buy balsamic, the real age traditional stuff, it always says it's either at least 12 years old or at least 25 years old. So what does it mean? The first one you tasted, I told you it was at least six. But this barrel contains all the product that we've been putting inside this barrel from the beginning of the life of the barrel. So why don't you just leave the product in one barrel and age it there for six years? Why this whole moving a little bit each year thing? You wouldn't have the same complexity in taste that we are achieving now. So adding something every year is making them more active. It's all about keeping the balsamic alive, not letting it get stuck. But the moving, adding young blood to the older barrels, that's not the only thing contributing to balsamic's flavor development. There's also the wood of the barrels themselves. Christina told us they use woods they can get in the region. Oak and acacia are sweet and warm. Mulberry and cherry are fresh and fruity. Ash is very delicate. Chestnut is tannic. But because it is the cheapest, everyone's got a barrel made of chestnut. And we used to sweeten the flavor given by chestnut with oak. Oak is the most used wood for smallest barrels. And the one in the middle is juniper. Juniper is a very aromatic and spicy wood. So aromatic and spicy that you can tell if a vinegar has been kept in a barrel made of juniper wood simply by smelling it. Over the years that the balsamic is moving along into smaller and smaller barrels, its flavor is being transformed. Emilio gave us a taste of the at least six-year-old balsamic, which is actually too young to legally sell. It tasted fine to me, but kind of acidic, a little sweet and thick, but really more like regular sherry vinegar. Then we moved on to the good stuff. But let's continue. So you see how the product is uh, following is its path to the excellence. Ready? Yeah. Okay, please, <laughs> poker face. Okay, don't tell the others what you're uh, <laughs> feeling. I don't want the... The world to know. The this one is at least 13, mm. more or less. Mm. <laughs> that was one of the worst poker faces I've ever seen. <laughs> we don't do poker faces here. No, okay. So it's become sweeter, it's become thicker. thicker. It's also become... Rounder. Yeah. And more caramel notes to it, too. So here's the funny thing. I have no idea how some lunatic Modernese person first decided to do this whole kind of painful process of transferring just a tiny bit of vinegar into a smaller barrel each year. No one really does. We have a record that tells us that in the year 1046, a German emperor, Henry III, going to meet the Pope, stopped in this area to collect a barrel of a vinegar that from the description could have been an ancestor of this traditional balsamic vinegar. But we haven't found a barrel, we haven't found any recipes dating back one or two thousand years, so only we can tell you is that we found a record. There is also a record in the 1500s of Lucretia Borgia, who has something of a reputation, the Borgia family is specialized in poisonings and murder, 
but she apparently specially requested the famous vinegar of Modena to ease her labor pains. The name balsamic vinegar was first used, as far as we know, in 1747. It was another name for the Duke's vinegars that were kept in his secret cellars. The name is from the Latin balsam, like a thick aromatic balm. But balsamic wasn't only for the Duke. In ancient times, uh, families used to start a new set any time a girl was born. In this way, when the girl was ready to leave the house, usually because she was getting married, the vinegar was already good. Christina's family started a set of barrels for her when she was born. She's not married, but she's used her own vinegar anyway. Now the tradition stays on, but people don't mind the gender. Anything is a good ex- can be a good excuse to start a new set. So people were doing this, cooking grape must, moving it from barrel to barrel in an attic, but there wasn't a clear defined step by step, this is what you do to make balsamic vinegar until... The first record, the first recipe describing in details the process that we still use to make traditional balsamic vinegar is described in one of the letters Pio Fabriani and Francesco Gazzotti exchanged between 1860 and 1862. He was just describing the method his family was following to help his friend to make a better vinegar. This letter was the first time that these specific steps were spelled out. But nowadays, they're law. Emilio's family has been making balsamic vinegar this way for at least six generations back. Today, they make 5,000 to 8,000 bottles a year. But they don't put their own vinegar into bottles. They're not allowed to. So you will have... Uh, to bring the product to the consortium, whole amount. There's a special consortium. They're basically the guardians of balsamic tradition. And they decide whether a product is good enough to be called traditional balsamic vinegar of Modna. There the product is tested and tasted by expert. They taste it for minimal acidity, minimal density, and then taste it. And if the product is okay, they do the bottling. Christina was a master taster and would have been one of those people judging vinegar like Amelia's, though she's no longer doing it these days. It had taken over her life. If you're a taster, you spend more time tasting than you do with your family. At the museum, Christina talked us through what she used to do and what tasters still do every day in Modna. This is a typical table used to taste traditional balsamic vinegar. Six people gather around the table and, first of all, they check the color of the vinegar through the light of a candle. So when you check uh, the vinegar through the light of a candle, you look for the perfect density. The color must be dark with ruby reflexes, and it must be clear. Then they sniff it. Christina told us you're looking for an aroma that sticks around. It needs to have lasting power, but still be delicate. You want to have a refined perfume not too aggressive. And then they taste a few drops. They spread the vinegar around on their tongue and press it to the roof of their mouth. Then you look for a body. When you taste it in your mouth, you look for a body and you want a vinegar that remains there even when you swallow it. And the flavor should be nice and harmonious. And then it must be sour because vinegar is sour and it must be sour, not too sweet not too sour. Everything must be very well balanced and refined. And then they talk about the vinegar and then they give the vinegar a score. Sometimes there are discussions that goes on for minutes and minutes. Some other times you find people that agree about the quality of the vinegar. The highest possible score is 400. 
Nobody got such a high score. The best vinegars get about 320 or so, but if it's not quite good enough to be called real balsamic vinegar of Modena, the guardians of tradition might send the producer back to age it another year or so. And that's it. This is traditional balsamic vinegar of Modena. Balsamic vinegar was a pretty local product for a very long time. European aristocracy might have craved it, but the majority of the world had no idea it even existed. And then suddenly... And I remember this happening. You couldn't move for a balsamic drizzled caprese salad. So what happened? A few things happened within just a decade or so. In 1976, Chuck Williams, he's the founder of Williams-Sonoma, he first saw and fell in love with balsamic vinegar in Italy. And at the time, it was almost impossible to find here. So in 1977, he imported some in his Williams-Sonoma catalog. And apparently, it was really popular. He's credited with starting the balsamic craze in America. Although Emilio's theory is that balsamic really became big a little later. It was in the 90s, I think, because I remember in Star Trek, in one of the movie, there is uh, Captain Picard and say, something about serve to the aliens some balsamic vinaigrette or something like that. Our guests have arrived. They are eating the floral arrangements on the banquet tables. I guess they don't believe in cocktails before dinner. Oh my God, are they vegetarian? That's not in there. Perhaps we should have the chef whip up a light balsamic vinaigrette, something that goes well with chrysanthemums. So it was in the 90s. But something else happened in the 1990s too. This was the moment of the fight. You know, our tiny consortium was fighting to... Uh, received this protection from the European law and the European Union, but then everything went wrong. As we said, the real balsamic vinegar is super expensive, at least 50 bucks for a small bottle. And now you understand why it takes years to make. But balsamic vinegar in America suddenly was super popular. So, of course, copycats started to elbow in on Emilio's family business. His family and the consortium, the Balsamic Guardians, They wanted to say that the only product you could call balsamic vinegar was balsamic vinegar made the way they make it. But they lost. There is actually a law about what can be called traditional balsamic vinegar of Modena. It does, yes, have to be made in Modena, but there are industrial shortcuts you can take. You can make it with wine vinegar, for instance, which, as we know from Andy, takes a lot less time to produce. Wine vinegar, concentrated must, caramel, whatever. This more industrial, faster product, it's cheaper, obviously. And it's not bad. In fact, for years it was all I knew. It's all many Italians know. And it's legally sold as traditional balsamic vinegar of Modena with an IGP label, a protected geographical indication. So it looks really legit. As Nikki said, it's not bad, but it doesn't have the same complexity and depth of flavor. And frankly, the grapes don't even have to come from Modena. So if you want the real balsamic the stuff that Emilio and Christina make, painstakingly transferring vinegar between barrels each year, you need to be specific. It has to be called traditional balsamic vinegar of Modena, and it has to have a DOP symbol, a protected designation of origin. Which is confusing because the IGP label looks really similar. Let's make this all even more confusing for you and more frustrating for Emilio. If you go to the supermarket and you see something called balsamic vinegar, no mention of Modena, it could just be industrial wine vinegar with added sugar. That's what most of the stuff in America is. You can tell, too. It flows like water. It's not thick at all. It's just slightly sweet vinegar. I would say be careful here. If you do try the real stuff, it's very hard to go back. And it's a really expensive habit, although a little does go a long way. But oh my God. God, is it good. Emilio cooked us lunch, homemade focaccia and all, and spared no expense on the balsamic vinegar. One of the most common appetizers is 
Parmesan cheese with traditional balsamic vinegar. So we're drizzling some drops on the Parmesan. And then you will tell me how it tastes. I can already tell you how it tastes. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'll just put it that way. I could see the future, and I was right. It was just as delicious as I expected. So that's the frittata with the zucchini. And on top, we're pouring some traditional balsamic vinegar on top of it. In a beautiful shape of a spiral. At this point, I asked Emilio whether he just puts balsamic on everything, because everything tastes better with it. I put balsamic. Yeah. The frittata was amazing. I'm going to start drizzling balsamic on all my eggs, if I can afford it. I'm afraid that podcasting and a balsamic habit may not be compatible. (laughs) Then, to finish our balsamic feast, Emilio brought us some gelato drizzled with the at least 25-year-old balsamic. Wow. Looks like hot fudge sauce. I have a feeling it's going to taste a lot better. I was going to say, this is much more appealing to me than hot fudge. Tony, her eyes literally rolled backwards in her head at this point. Nikki, so did yours. If I could only have one ice cream topping in the world mm-hmm. for the rest of all time, it would surely be this. Mm-hmm. Like, no competition at all with anything ever. <laughs> we kept asking everyone in Modena if anyone else in the world makes a similar vinegar, something this sweet and rich and complex. Of course, they're Italian. They said nobody else, just them. But Michael, he's the one who wrote the cookbook on vinegar. He told us about an insane Japanese sweet potato vinegar that smelled like Beaujolais, but was really sweet. Akihiro Iyo, who is a many generation vinegar maker who has taken it over from his uh, father and mother in the past few years, poured it over vanilla ice cream. And I have a little bottle bottle of uh, that vinegar. It's called Benimosu at my house specifically to kind of like blow people's mind and pour it over ice cream for dessert. And that's the thing. For Michael and also for Andy, it's not about, oh, you have to spend 50 bucks on fancy balsamic. Yes, fancy balsamic is amazing. If you get the chance to try it, you have to. But their point is, vinegar in general is so much more than the industrial product most of us have on our shelves. It's, it's, it's often overlooked as something that's important. Because most people think of it just for salad dressing, which Michael doesn't mind. But then when everyone starts thinking that, oh, yeah, I have vinegar and I do this, you know, I, I get fruit flies with it, this. I hate that vinegar has somehow been relegated to cleaning more than it has to culinary purposes. Andy and Michael are campaigning to break vinegar out of its salad dressing bottle. We had it on eggs in Italy. Andy uses it in casseroles and paella and gazpacho. Michael has an entire book full of recipes that require vinegar. Me, personally, I almost always splash some at the end when I'm cooking greens or other vegetables. Acidity is one of those, you know, handful of elements that needs to happen in a well-balanced dish. Um, And I know a lot of chefs, actually, I'll say most chefs will say if a dish is missing something, it's usually acidity. So... I think a lot of people just don't even know how to use it. They're a little scared of what vinegar is. I know before we made this episode, it wouldn't have crossed my mind to add a dash of vinegar to my stew or my pan-fried fish or whatever. At most, I would use like a squeeze of lemon to add that acidity. If you go into supermarkets, it's rather second-rate balsamic and a few other vinegars. So, you know, people have kind of discovered good quality olive oil and how you can use different oils for different things. And they should be able to do the same with vinegar. That's really the point, as we discovered in Andy's Shed. There are so many different vinegars, each with its own acidity level and flavor. Andy loves the cinnamon and cloves-infused vinegar to deglaze the pan when he's cooking duck. And he uses a cider vinegar to poach rhubarb. Vinegar, the gateway to a new dimension. 
as Captain Picard never said. Once again, a huge, huge thanks to Tony Mazzaglia for arranging our balsamic vinegar tours and translating and making everything happen. Go to Florence and take her food tour, tasteflorence.com. Thanks to Andy Harris of The Vinegar Shed, Michael Harlan Turkel, whose new book is called Acid Trip, Emilio Biancardi of the Antica Acetaya Villa Bianca, and Christina Sereni of the Museum of Traditional Balsamic Vinegar in Spilamberto. We have links to their books and their online shops so you can buy vinegar and cook with it to your heart's delight. It's all on our website along with lots of amazing photos of our vinegar adventures, gastropod.com. And I also have to thank my parents for cutting out and saving an article about Andy Harris for me. They provide a dedicated clipping service for which I am extremely grateful. And, of course, thanks to Gastropod's in-house microbiologist, Ben Wolf of Tufts University. He answered all our appropriate vinegar questions and then some that were maybe not quite in his wheelhouse. The other thing people do is they, um, they put it on their hair in the shower to make their hair shiny. Why on earth would that work? Would it? Um, again, <laughs> tiny bit outside we're, your we're taking wee way. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like professor of hair shininess at Tufts, Ben Wolfs. <laughs> yeah, I could put that on my CV somewhere. Um, you know, I think it makes sense that uh, these acids are really good at denaturing proteins, and so they can help loosen up and denature proteins that are stuck onto things um, and other, you know, fats and other kinds of things that can help solubilize those. So it does make sense if you put vinegar on your hair, it'll probably clean your hair. But again, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm not a hair specialist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. <laughs> 